Okay. Well, <clears throat> so a basis for ethics and mor morality is what we want to talk about. I try. I begin with a question. How many of you behave in a good way or avoid behaving in a bad way because you're afraid that you'll be punished if you're bad by some God after you die or be rewarded in heaven if you're good by God after you die? How many of you behave in a good way and avoid behaving in a bad way because you uh, are hoping to be reborn in good circumstances after you die? <laughs> and just in general, this is this, one of the things I thought about is uh, these kinds of incentives for moral behavior have been with us for a very long time. <clears throat> I know a little bit about Western cultural history. And one of the interesting things that I can tell you is most of the really important social reforms in Western history have been instigated by atheists. <laughs> <laughs> And there's been quite a few rather incredible atrocities committed by people who profess to be deeply religious. You might have heard of a little affair once known as the Inquisition. <laughs> uh, we train children by inflicting a punishment on them when they do something wrong and giving them a reward when they do something right. And that works with children pretty well, doesn't it? Although a, a bit more modern point of view would be that uh, the punishment isn't really as effective as the reward and neither is it as effective as communicating with the child and helping them to understand why they should do this and not do that, right? Yeah. I think something of the same thing is true uh, culturally and socially over history. I think that, you know, if, if you threaten enough brutality, you can make people behave the way you want them to. And if you offer them enough of what they want or need, uh, it's another way of coercing their behavior. But I think any systems of ethics and morality that is based on the assumption that somebody's going to decide whether to do something or not based on uh, the consideration of what's going to happen to them in, in heaven or hell after they die or what's going to, uh, what, is going to, what kind of circumstances they're going to be born into in another life. I just basically don't think it, I think 
that's mostly an illusion that it has any effect at all. I think it does have some motivating effect. I know, uh, I know a lot of Asian people, and they grew up from a very early age that uh, they were they they were made to be concerned with what kind of incarnation they would have in a future life, and so. I mean, they, they, they heard this, and it was drilled into their heads from, from the time they were able to speak. So by the time they're 30 or 40 and have degrees in engineering or accounting or so on and so forth, they stopped thinking about it a long, long time ago. And they will say, well, I practice the Dharma uh, because, uh, because I want to have a better rebirth. And they believe that when they tell it tell it to you, but if you press them, you know, as to, uh, okay, is, is that what's in your mind, but, you know, there's a situation, uh, you'd like to go to this retreat, but uh, there's this problem, uh, uh, what a big part, what, what part does that consideration play in your decision to uh, go on this retreat? You can do the same thing with all kinds of other things. And it's sort of a story that you might tell yourself that you're, you're good because you don't want to be punished in an afterlife. And you want to be rewarded. But when you get down to the nitty gritty, it doesn't really have too much to do with your actual behavior on the ground, you know, where the rubber meets the road. It's usually not even remotely part of your consideration. So, I'm going to tell you what the Buddhist basis for ethics and morality is. But I would just like to set the ground that we don't need heavens and hells and future lives in order to be moral and ethical people. It's totally unnecessary. As a matter of fact, one of the uh, Asians that I speak of, he struggled this for a long time. It's a really interesting example of, you know, very intelligent person, we talked through this many times. And he said, but, but why would I do anything? Why would I be a good person? I said, are you a good person? Yes, I, I am. And tell me, you know, he is. He's a really good person. A very good person. I, I would put him up there for all kinds of people to emulate in terms of their the ethical and moral quality of their behavior. But he was convinced that the only reason he was doing this was because he believed in reincarnation. What funny thing. It is really, fun. and then finally one day it occurred to him. He said, "Well, there's people I love. You know, if you have children, you want to do what's good for your children. You want things to go well for them. It's not because you believe you are your children." I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, I guess I don't have to believe that I'm going to be reborn and suffer the consequences to not want to do things that are bad for people and want to do things that are good." And for him, it was a great insight. And it took a, a lot of while to a lot of time to incubate, but it was wonderful for him. It was very liberating because he could keep on doing what he'd always doing, but know that he was doing it out of an inherent goodness of his own, not out of some kind of fear. With a, a particular curiosity, what flavor Asian was he? He's Chinese, Taiwanese, Taiwanese. Yeah. What about 
reciprocation in terms of, you know, if you, you treat other people well, mm -hmm. they'll treat you well or yeah. your kids well. Or, and hopefully if that, when worldwide we'd be have a better world, but anyway. That's right, yes. We're, well, see, and this is where Buddha came from. If, if we take as our reference in this, the Buddha's first teaching on the Four Noble Truths, and he taught the truth of suffering, and basically what this is, is for beings like ourselves, there is pain and suffering. It's inevitable. We cannot live without, without pain. Um, now we can make a distinction between mental suffering, and mental suffering can be overcome through this practice that we're talking about. But there's pain in life. And, not, and, and there is harm. We will sustain harm. You cannot, you know, even if you were born into a bubble, you can only live so long before something happens, you, you are harmed and you're hurt. It's the nature of the kind of beings we are. And it's the nature of life, the way it works on this planet. I know, maybe on some other galaxy there's beings that live solely on cosmic radiation or something. But life on this planet lives at the expense of other life. And so, bottom line, there is a certain amount of pain and suffering that is absolutely unavoidable, inevitable, irreducible. Now, there's a whole lot of pain and suffering in addition to that, and most of which we inflict on each other. So, and, and, and have anything, have I said anything now that requires belief? No. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious. Yeah, you know, there's pain in life, there's a certain amount. And you know there's unnecessary pain as well. So as a basic ethical principle, if there's enough pain and suffering in the world as it is, we should avoid creating any more. We should avoid being the sources of unnecessary pain and suffering, of being the cause of, of avoidable pain and suffering. That's a moral principle. As a matter of fact, we can carry it a little further than that and say, that's the not doing bad part. We're doing a bad thing anytime we create, we contribute to pain and suffering in the world that is unnecessary, that could be avoided that adds unnecessarily to the total amount of pain in the world. That's doing a bad thing. To do a good thing, since there's already also a lot of unnecessary pain there, the definition of a good act as opposed to just not doing a bad act would be to do something that in some way reduces the unnecessary pain and suffering in the world. That's an ethical principle that doesn't require any belief, doesn't come from any higher power, anything else. It's just plain common sense. Enough pain in the world, it's bad to add to it any more than, than uh, you need to. I mean, we, we're going to cause pain and, and harm by living. We cannot avoid it. It's helpful here to examine uh, one of the contemporaries of the Buddha was the founder of a sect that exists today called the Jains. Back at that time, part of their belief 
was that uh, they should cause absolutely no harm to any other being. And so they tried to do that. They swept the path every step before they put their foot down so that they wouldn't step on a bug. And they filtered the water before they drank it. They carried a filter with them and filtered the water just in case there was some little microscopic animal in there that they would swallow and digest. Because they had the religious beliefs that that they had to avoid, avoid causing any kind of suffering. And they carried this to the logical extreme. Totally logical extreme. Even if you sweep before every step and even if you filter your water, you're still causing harm to other beings. So that in that particular religious view, the most highly evolved spiritual act you are capable of is to sit down right where you are and not move, not eat, not drink until you die. And that's totally logical. If you believe that you must avoid causing any harm at all, that's your only alternative. I mean, even if you shoot yourself, somebody's got to clean up the mess afterwards, right? So, so we cannot it's the nature of the world that we are going to be the causes of harm. So we make this really important distinction between unavoidable, inevitable harm, pain, suffering, and that which is avoidable. And that gives us a really solid foundation for ethical behavior. This is translated in Buddhism, in the Buddhist teaching, to in a single word, ahimsa, which means harmlessness. And it doesn't mean stupid, Jane-like harmlessness. It means it means the most reasoned and intelligent harmless, harmlessness that you are capable of. And then it is expanded, the principle of harmlessness is expanded in the form of precepts. To not cause harm to other beings, not take what's not freely given, don't engage in sexual misconduct, which can be expanded to include any kind of social interactions that are abusive or exploitive, um, not to engage in wrong speech. These precepts are an expansion of the basic principle of uh, ahimsa, harmful harmlessness. And actually, when they're properly understood, they're as much about not harming yourself, not bringing unnecessary harm and suffering to yourself as they are about not bringing unnecessary harm and suffering to any other being. And so this is the basis of Buddhist ethics. Harmlessness expanded through the keeping of precepts. The fifth precept is not to uh, cause dullness of mind that might lead to heedless behavior because, of course, you'll do things that are harmful to other people. So we have, with, without reference to anything else, we do have an ethical principle to follow. And we have very clear guidelines as to how we can go about implementing that. Now, the Buddha made a further distinction. He made a distinction between action, actions and the consequences of the actions and intentions and the consequences of intentions. So,
it's good to ask yourself to begin with, why would anybody ever do something that caused unnecessary harm to anyone or anything else? You know the answer? Now, why would somebody do anything that did cause harm? Selfishness. Selfishness. Why, why would you ever say something that's not true? Why would you ever take something that belonged to somebody else? For your own benefit. For your own benefit. Yes. Yeah. So, the motivation behind all of our harmful actions is desire or aversion and hatred or just plain ignorance. Right? Now that's a pretty powerful idea right there. Of course, we've been talking all about this weekend about how you overcome ignorance and how overcoming ignorance helps you to overcome desire and aversion. But it is the fact that where you, you do things that hurt others either because you're totally unaware that you're doing it or because you're so clueless you think it's going to produce one effect and it really produces another. Those are examples of ignorance. Or you do it out of the desire and aversion that come from the ignorance of not realizing that we're all in this together and that you're not really separate. The desire and aversion and delusion and ignorance are the cause of our bad actions. When the Buddha divided things up into actions and the consequences of actions and intentions and the consequences of intentions, he was zooming in on this fact right here. He said, Uh, a bad intention is an intention that is rooted in desire and aversion and therefore makes the tendency to desire and aversion stronger. And an intention that is rooted in delusion makes the delusion stronger. So therefore, bad intentions are intentions that harm you because they make you more firmly entrapped by desire and aversion and your own delusion. Bad actions are those that you can reasonably forecast are going to create unnecessary harm in the world. Good, act, good intentions are intentions that would increase the that, that are not rooted in desire, that are rooted more in generosity, loving kindness, that are not rooted in anger and aversion, but are rooted in patience and compassion uh, and love. And good intentions are intentions that are rooted in the recognition that that we aren't really separate, right? Good actions, good actions are those that simply, to the best of our ability to forecast their consequences, are going to 
reduce the amount of unnecessary suffering in the world. Now if we put these two together, you can see that good intentions drive good actions, and bad intentions, as defined by the Buddha, drive bad actions. He called, he said, you see, when the Buddha was born, it was believed that somebody kept tabs on all of your actions, and you'd get reborn in circumstances according to the quality of your actions. The most important thing about your actions was how well you fulfilled the duties that were appropriate to your particular caste. And if you were in a lower caste and you did your duties really well, then next time around you'd be born in a higher caste because of that. If you were in a if you were born into a poor family and a poor community that uh, if you followed the rules and behaved properly and didn't take things that weren't yours and everything else, then you'd get reborn in a richer family and a richer neighborhood. And it was, a, and they called that karma. Karma means action. So the idea was that your action determined your, your what happened to you, what happened to you in the future. And the Buddha said, and so by the time the Buddha came along, there was already this well-established idea that karma, rather than simply meaning action, karma meant specifically actions which brought about moral consequences on the person that performed the action. Well, Buddha took that term and he said, I'm going to use it differently. When I say karma, I mean intention. And we're going to distinguish the difference, we're going to make a clear distinction between karma and its effects and actions and their effects. The actions have consequences. And if you are kind and generous and helpful, uh, that's going to produce consequences. Not any mysterious consequences that somehow get needed out to you by some magical power, but through simple cause and effect. If you're nice to people, people will be nice to you back. If you're honest and don't steal, then uh, you are going to be respected and people will respect your property more. Uh, if you don't lie, people won't lie to you. If you don't speak badly about other people, people are less likely to speak badly about you. So there's a lot personally be, to be gained by behaving in a good way, by following the precepts. Put it more simply, if your actions are geared not to cause harm, unnecessary harm to others, and whenever possible to reduce the unnecessary harm to others, you are going to, through the, through the workings of physics and chemistry and biology and psychology, you are going to reap positive fruits of that. There's still no guarantee that somebody's not going to come and mug you, or that um, your house is going to burn down completely by accident or something like that because that's part of the world of causality as well it, the Buddha also acknowledged that in terms of actions that we, always, we can't always accurately predict the consequences of our action and so uh, all we can do is is predict the results of our actions in the best way we possibly can and act accordingly and if something happens that we don't expect then we can try to learn from it 
But what he wanted us to focus on while doing that was our intentions. Because craving, desire, and aversion are the cause of suffering. If you act out of intentions based in craving, you are going to strengthen craving. So therefore, if you do that today, tomorrow you're going to be a person who is prone to more suffering because you're prone to greater desire and aversion. That's a consequence of intention. If you act out of generosity and compassion and loving kindness, you are weakening the hold that desire and aversion have on you, and you are going to be less likely to suffer whatever happens to you. If you act out of intentions that are rooted in attachment to the self and the belief that you've got things figured out and you know how the world works and these other kinds of ignorance and delusion, you are going to strengthen that delusion. Whereas if you act out of the wisdom that comes from studying the Dharma, you're going to weaken the hold that that delusion has on you. What this adds up to is the result of karma. If you, if the intentions behind your actions, no matter how they turn out, even if the action hurts somebody because you didn't intend them to, the results of your karma, if, you, if your karma was good, then you are going to become a different kind of person. Good karma means your actions are rooted in in generosity, compassion, loving kindness, uh, patience, and so forth. And that your intentions are rooted in wisdom rather than delusion. This is going to move you closer to being an enlightened being. If your actions are arising out of desire, even if it's the desire to be born rich in the next lifetime, you're making yourself more subject to desire, which is going to make you more subject to suffering. Likewise for aversion, likewise for delusion. If you reinforce the delusion of separate selfhood and everything else, you're moving yourself further away from enlightenment. You shift yourself back and forth, closer to enlightenment, further to enlightenment, and right along with that, as you go closer to enlightenment, you're going to be less subject to suffering. Not because bad things are not going to happen to you anymore, but because you're going to respond to them differently. You are going to become. You're going to move closer to. To um, if you if you go the other way, you're going to move in the direction of more suffering. You're not just moving away from enlightenment. You're getting more deeply entrapped in the ignorance, the delusion, the desire, the aversion that is going to create your suffering. So it's guaranteed that the result of your bad karma is that you're going to experience more suffering. Right? Your karma is the intentions behind your actions, and the result of your karma is who you are going to be in the future. Your actions produce repercussions in the world, and the results of your actions are going to be the things that happen to you. The results of your karma are going to be who it happens to. Two different things. This is the basis of Buddhist ethics. Um, 
not not increasing the unnecessary uh, pain and suffering in the world and decreasing it wherever you can and trying to move yourself in the direction that you will experience less suffering no matter what happens to you. Exactly the same intentions and actions that reduce the suffering in the world at large are going to reduce your tendency to suffer no matter what happens to you. <coughs> and the opposite is true. And this makes a lot more sense than worrying about what's going to happen to you in a future life. Um, so, um, so the uh, of the Buddha, he somehow I don't know. I thought from reading <coughs> that Buddha actually created karma theory, but now I understand it was existed before. He just explained oh, no. how it works. No, Buddha created a brand new karma theory and threw the old one out. The old karma theory was was what you do determines what happens to you. And there is some truth in that, but it's not, it doesn't happen by some magical way. It happens through physics and chemistry and biology and psychology. If I'm nasty to you, you'll be nasty to me, right? So, and, but the old theory was, went beyond that. It was some sort of magical thing. There was this, this, nobody said who or how, but something somewhere was keeping track of everything you ever did and was going to make sure you got yours back sooner or later. The Buddha threw that out. Totally. Came up with a whole different theory of karma. He said, actions have consequences, but all of those consequences are the result of material, biological, and psychological causality. He said, on the other hand, karma is its own kind of causality. The and he said, when I say karma, I mean intention. Your intentions shape who you are. And they shape who you are in terms of the kind of suffering that you're going to experience, whatever happens to you. So he identified karma as a different kind of causality that in, in our terms is more important than the other kinds. Right? Thank you. Yeah. So can we say that by good intention and good action we're creating causes and conditions for being able to realize the, the various insights that we've been talking about? That's right. And we are. That's exactly right. And as a matter of fact, in, the, in those uh, 18 insights, they're divided up into five purifications. The two purifications that come before that are virtue and uh, purification of mind. The purification of virtue is exactly this. And one of the things that gets understated too often is that you cannot progress on this spiritual path effectively if you do not engage with uh, virtue. You have to live virtuously. Because doing that kind of good karma changes you in such a way that the meditation is going to work. That the study, you're going to understand what you're studying much better. It's going to be easier to understand. There's another factor in this too, and kind of another way of looking at this. I mentioned to you before that atheists were the instruments of a lot of the social reform that we've seen in Western culture, uh, and that most people don't do good 
because uh, uh, do good and avoid bad because of their, of their fear of some kind of retribution. There's a recognition that there is, there, there is something good in us all, in every person. And we'll put that in Buddhist terms, we all have a Buddha nature. We all are the Buddha nature. Our true nature is the Buddha nature. And the Buddha nature is wise and compassionate. So we already are, in our true nature, wise and compassionate beings. But we've, we've just kind of buried our true nature under this uh, incidental layer of confused garbage. And so what we're really doing is we're cleaning the crystal. What we're really doing is removing all of the adventitious confusion and ignorance and selfishness and desire and aversion that uh, is obscuring our true nature. So the question of why would I do good and why would I not do evil is really turned that around the other way. It's well, why would you do evil and why wouldn't you do good? And the, the thing is that everyone, e even those people that have done terribly evil things, they have deep within them that same good nature that would lead to, to good actions and would have prevented them from doing those evil things had it not been obscured. This is where the ignorance and the confusion and the delusion is, is so so big a problem. So what, the way you can look at it is that the Buddhist path is one, the Buddhist path of virtue is one of removing the obscurations that keep your true nature from shining through. And it's your true nature that compassion is an expression of your true nature, generosity is an expression of your true nature, patience, loving kindness, these are all expression of your true nature. And isn't it true? I mean, is there anybody in this room that doesn't know that, that that really is your true nature? What you wrestle with is not, not that, but why you go ahead and do these other things anyway. Why, why do I do evil? Why do I pass up the chance to do good? Your true nature is in there asking that question. And you've asked that question of yourself many times before. And you've wrestled with it sometimes when there was something that you knew you shouldn't do, but you did it anyway. Why do I do that? But by now, the answer should be clear. And if it isn't, that's a really important insight to get. Oh, I'm doing this out of selfishness, out of desire and aversion, out of believing that my happiness is dependent upon things that I can only obtain by doing things that are hurtful to somebody else. Is that not a pretty powerful ethics? Yeah. Morality? Yeah. Do you think do you think here is where the little axiom people in pain create pain might apply or is that not No, it apl it applies totally. I really like the way Eckhart Tolle talks about it. He says Are your pain body. Once your pain body gets out of its box, it's going to try and wrap on everybody else's box and get their pain body out too. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a totally new way of looking at misery loves company. Eckhart Tolle? 
Misery loves company. When when I'm miserable, I want to make everybody else miserable too. <laughs> yeah. The, um, I'm just thinking. I'm thinking of examples of people who have done so-called evil, mm-hmm. in, uh, and and uh, it's perhaps in a larger time frame that that they were just agents of bringing forth uh, <coughs> something that um, everybody needed to examine within themselves. Um, well, specific, you know, yeah. Hitler's the obvious example, but that's so obvious. Yeah, right. But Angulimala or, you know, just just me, you know? Um, I just noticed that sometimes, like, um, it's almost like a perversion. It's a perversion of uh, behavior that then confronts me with the fact that a whole that wasn't very nice, and I'm suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm suffering. So it's like uh, the whole idea of blame or uh, drive all blames into one. Drive all blames into one. To one. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, so okay. I guess it's like I'm thinking, oh, drive all blames into oneself. Yeah. Right? Well, it's like taking on all the whatever. It's, it's like hyper martyrdom. Yeah. Um, and what do you accomplish with that? I mean, it's clear what Hitler accomplished for the benefit of the rest of us. We all understood that we shouldn't want to do that. But if you take all this on to yourself in hyper-martyrdom, what are you doing for us? Um, I'm learning what it's like. Ah, okay. I'm learning what it's like, and, and then there's like a progression. Okay. Ever perhaps very slow. Okay, so, so what you're doing by taking off is putting yourself in a place of understanding so that you'll, you'll be far more compassionate in the future yourself. Uh, that would be a good goal. That would be a good goal. I wonder <laughs> if there's not an easier way to get there. <laughs> but it's a good goal. If it brings you to a place of being more loving and more compassionate, then that's great, I'm all for it. But when I think about what you might experience in the course of your own hyper-martyrdom, I'd really want to think, you know, couldn't I suggest a better way? It's like there's this story, and you probably know this story, but it's like um, one time the Buddha had this horrible headache, you know, he had like a migraine headache, and Ananda wanted to do something to help him, you know? And so Ananda tried to do all these various things to mitigate the Buddha's suffering. And then finally the Buddha said, listen, when I was in a former life, a child or something, I caught a fish and whacked the fish with a fish's head three times. And I will have this headache for three days because I am uh, expelling that particular karmic Action. Uh, so. I hadn't had heard that one before. It sounds like a Jataka tale. 
What I hear in something like that mm-hmm. is the Buddha saying, look at it, relax, don't worry about it. You know, I got this headache, I got it for a good reason, it'll go away on some terms. Um, what you, there, are, there are ways you can use your pain. Um, one is when you find yourself in pain, you can say, well, uh, I'm taking this on for the benefit of everybody else. Now, whether or not that's going to reduce anybody else's pain in a deductible way or not is not really important. But it puts you in a totally different experience. If you're doing this as an, if you, if if you're having a migraine headache as an act of love, rather than having a migraine headache and feeling really miserable and resisting it and resenting it and wanting to escape from it, that's a lot better play. Karmically, even you see, I I said to you that the intention counts, even even if you mistake the 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 consequences in the world of your action. So the intention, if you take, if you're in pain and you take on the pain for the sake of other being, that's an act of generosity. You're making good karma, even if you're totally mistaken about whether or not it's going to make a difference to anybody else's pain anywhere else. The fact is, we have no way of measuring, so we have no way of knowing. Maybe you taking on somebody else's pain does reduce the pain somewhere else. But, it doesn't matter. You're move, you've made some good karma. You've moved yourself closer to being enlightened by doing that. And that ultimately is going to be benefit to everyone else. So, that's how I look at these things. Isn't that what Jesus did? What's that? Isn't that what Jesus Christ did? Yes. Je- Jesus, Jesus the, teaching, Je- Jesus was belief. a great Buddha. He had the belief that he was going to free. That's right. The he, world. he he was willing to take on the suffering of the world. Yeah. To to uh, to the point of view of anyone else, uh, there were a bunch of Romans inflicting a lot of suffering on him. Right. But in his mind. What he chose to do was to take on that suffering for the benefit of everyone else. Yeah. And to this day, we can't tell for sure whether that suffering he took on has actually helped anybody or not. <laughs> but it doesn't matter from my point of view. Yeah. You were starting to talk about. Uh, ways of using pain, and one of them was um, taking it on for the benefit of others. So yeah. There are a lot of things like that. Tong Lin is a practice where you, you with it, each in breath, you're you're taking in the pain and the suffering and the and the evil and the badness of the world, and you're you're purifying it and then you're breathing it out again. And it's the intention that counts. It's the all of the power is in the intention. As a matter of fact, if we go back to what a person learns when they become a strained entrant, they learn that rites and rituals and practices like this have no power of their own. 
It's, it's the power that your own mind puts into it. But if you're practicing Tong Lin, you're doing some really powerful work on yourself. You're creating some really good karma. And people do ask, well, you know, is there really some, is, is there some kind of magical thing happening here that, you know, things are really being purified as a result of this? All I can tell you is I have no, I, I, I don't, I have no idea how anybody could ever determine that. So it doesn't matter. If the belief that it does, if the belief that it can puts you in the place of creating this very good karma, it is going to benefit everyone. So I have an, another question. If, if, if it's intention that matters and um, um, so every and is an enlightened being somebody who is conscious of every intention and, like I just lift my arm up but I wasn't necessarily yeah. conscious of that. Yeah. That's right. To to okay, so what about being conscious of every intention? The thing is it's conscious inten conscious intentions are the ones that make the karma. Unconscious intentions are merely reinforcing old karma. They're not making new karma. Um, you can be in the habit of of behaving in an unwholesome way and do it automatically without thinking. And every time you do it, it will reinforce that tendency. But if the day comes that you become conscious of yourself doing it and say, oh, I think I won't do that, that's when you've created some new karma. Or when you do something you haven't done before for the first time, then you're creating a new karma. If you, if you do it repeatedly, each time you do it consciously, you're, you're, you're strengthening it. But at a certain point, it becomes automatic and unconscious. And so it continues to strengthen itself. But the only thing that you can do about it, remember consciousness is the only realm that we have to work in, is when you become conscious of it, choosing to do something different, or even regretting it afterwards. When you realize, I've just done something that was unwholesome, and I did it completely automatically, and I didn't realize when I was doing it, do I regret it now? That's making some new karma. That's going to weaken a little bit your tendency to do that in the future. As long as you don't hold on to that regret, right? If you hold on to the regret, it's like just... Well, as long as it's regret and not guilt. Guilt is like beating yourself up. And beating yourself up isn't any better than beating somebody else up. I thought guilt was gold. <laughs> well, that's, that's guilt without you in it. If you remove you from the guilt, it's gold. <laughs>